I decided that I would uh, read our scripture passage this morning. It's full of those hard-to-pronounce Bible names, so I figured I'd take one for the team this morning and not ask someone else to do it. Our passage comes from the book of Acts, chapter 6, verses 1 to 7. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists rose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word, and what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Procurus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Paramenus, and Nicholas, a proselyte, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. This is God's Word. Let's pray. Father, just thanks for the opportunity to read and reflect on your Word today. We thank you that uh, that you make it true to our hearts, that you take these ancient words and you give them meaning to us here today and in our daily lives. So, Father, we pray that you would do that for us this morning. We pray ultimately that we would feel your presence, and that we would see you here this morning. We pray all this in his name. Amen. Many of you know that uh, for, for really 15 years now, uh, I've been coaching uh, cross-country uh, in several different high schools. And if you don't know what cross-country is, cross-country is uh, long-distance running. Uh, our athletes run uh, one, sometimes two, uh, five-kilometer races every week. Uh, they have to train and run miles and miles and miles and miles in their training. It's been one of the, the joys of my life to be able to coach. Uh, but the first couple of years, we would get freshmen that would come in every year. And the first thing we'd say to them is we'd say, you know this is cross-country, right? You know you're going to have to run a lot. And they would always say, yes, we're, we're, I'm, I'm into this. And we would ask them the, the question. We'd say, have you ever run before? And they said, oh, yeah, we run all the time. We're out there all the time, and we say, well, do you, do you consider yourself to be a good runner, a fast runner? And they say, they say, oh, we're great runners. They give us times for how fast that they could run that would beat world records from Olympians. And they would talk about just how wonderful and great they are. And then we would get really excited. We'd look around as a coaching staff and think, oh, we're going to have a really competitive team this year. But as we've done this over the years, we've realized to kind of withhold our judgment until we actually see them run. Because then we always send them out on warm-up jogs or we send them out on training runs. And then the truth is very often revealed to us. The truth that their words or their boasts don't really necessarily match up with their actions or their abilities. For the past few uh, weeks and few months, we've been looking at uh, this book of Acts. And the book of Acts talks about the first steps of Jesus' followers after he returned back into heaven after his earthly ministry. And we've seen how 
It was an incredible movement of God in which multitudes of people, thousands of people, were being converted day after day to following Jesus Christ. In Acts chapter 2, we saw how the Holy Spirit came and indwelt God's people in a very unique way, in a way that they were given the miraculous ability to speak other languages and to heal people physically from their sicknesses. But the most powerful thing of this movement was not the miracles. It wasn't all the interesting things that happened. The most powerful thing was the actual message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It was the words of life about what a relationship with God really and truly looked like. But as we've seen, the message wasn't just powerful because it was something that was spoken by Jesus' followers. It was powerful because they spoke it and they lived it. Their words were able to match up with their actions or their deeds. And what we see consistently throughout the book of Acts is that the gospel message was both exemplified and communicated in their words, the things that they said, but also in the deeds, in the things that they did as God's people. You know, they spoke a very powerful message. They shared the message that each and every one of us, mankind, is spiritually lost and vulnerable. They shared that, human, that mankind is spiritually poor and naked. They shared that we are all spiritually bankrupt and broken before God. But their message also told us that Jesus met them and meets us in the middle of our brokenness, in the middle of our sin, and he makes us whole again, restoring us to a right relationship with him. And this was the consistent message that, that Jesus' followers preached to everyone that they came in contact with. But it was, wasn't just powerful because of the substance of the message. It was powerful because they found a way to live it out tangibly in front of everyone that they met. They were discovering each day the depth of just how much God loved them and the extent that he was willing to go to communicate that love. And it naturally translated into love for others that God put on their path. It translated into a radical love for them as a community of faith, but also for those who needed love in their culture and in the first century world. Someone once said that they who love only in word and in tongue, and not in deed, actually have no love in truth. You see, they, the message they said is that God didn't just say he loved us, but he demonstrated his love for us in sacrificing himself on the cross. So likewise, his followers should share the message of love, but not just share it in word, but also in how they acted. Both Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4 give us these beautiful pictures of God's people and the community of faith that they had about how they loved one another intimately and cared for one another and sold their possessions and, and gave to one another in very radical and incredible ways. But in chapter 6, we start to see things shift a little bit and the depth of that love for one another becomes challenged. It becomes challenged for a really good problem. The issue was there was just too many people now. They were growing at an incredibly rapid rate beyond their capacity and their ability 
to really even handle it. If you've been living under a rock and you don't know, uh, our Baltimore Orioles last week secured a spot in the playoffs. And the city celebrated. I mean, it was the most exciting, one of the more exciting things that happened uh, here in Baltimore for a long time. And what Baltimore did in response was the very thing that Baltimoreans always do whenever they want to celebrate something. They go and buy stuff. And if you were near a, a sporting goods store, I guess it was on Wednesday morning, Wednesday or Thursday morning, you'll know that all the sporting goods stores in Baltimore were overrun with people wanting to buy uh, Orioles stuff. I may or may not have been a part of that in the process, uh, but the stores were overrun. Uh, they, were, they couldn't keep the, the t-shirts and the hats and the sweatshirts, they couldn't keep them on the shelves anymore, and, and workers were having a, a hard time handling the capacity of people that wanted all these Orioles merchandise. And there's a sense in which that is what is going on in our passage. See, our passage tells us that the church was growing rapidly. Thousands of people were coming to Christ daily, and it was really testing the, 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 the leadership of the first century church. It was testing their ability to handle all the people that were coming into God's kingdom. Because people and their needs began to overwhelm them. And they didn't feel like it was appropriate in light of the gospel for them to neglect all the needs of the people that were coming to them. So they needed to figure something out. They needed to come up with a plan. Our passage tells us that a a certain group of people uh, came before the leadership of the church and said that a certain group of widows in the church community were being neglected. These, it's, the passage tells us that these widows were among uh, the group of Hellenists. And the, the Hellenistic Jews were, were Jews of a different kind in the ancient world. They were Jews that were Jewish by heritage, but had moved away from Jerusalem. They'd moved to all sorts of different places in the Roman kingdom. But often what would happen is when they began to get older... And they knew that death was about to come. They would want to pass away. They would want to die and be buried in the land of their original heritage. So Jerusalem as a city would receive droves of Hellenistic Jews every day that were, that were older, that were elderly, that wanted to live out the remainder of their lives in kind of the land of their heritage. And they wanted to pass away and be buried with their parents. But something unique would happen. These older Hellenistic Jews would come to Jerusalem in order to to live out the rest of the days of their life. But what they were doing is they were discovering something new. They were discovering Jesus. And at the very end of their lives, they were being converted to Christianity. They were being converted to the way of Jesus. The effect it had was that it increased the amount of widows that had to be cared for in the church. You see, these were widows that came from a long distance away, so they had no family connection. And being converted to Christianity would sever them from their Jewish heritage. Many of their Jewish friends or relatives would no longer want to deal with them because they had embraced Christianity. And because of the cultural realities of the ancient world, these widows would be particularly vulnerable. They couldn't earn any wages. 
They had no means or legal rights. Their survival would have to depend on male relatives if they had them. And if they didn't, they would be neglected. They would be vulnerable. They would have no one to care for them in the ancient society. So the church immediately recognized that this was an issue and that they had to respond. So they gathered together uh, the leadership of the church and they selected these seven men. And these seven men had a specific job. Their job was to care for the material needs of the widows and anybody else who was in this Christian community that was particularly vulnerable because of society. These were men who were full of the Spirit and they were full of wisdom. You know, we face similar issues in the life of our church. If you haven't been here before, you'll know that City Church is a young, brand new church. And for a long time, it was just a very small group core of believers where we could just kind of get together and everything kind of organically took care of itself. We were one kind of big, happy family and everything just worked out that way. But as we've grown and as we continue to grow, we'll recognize that we need to apply some structure, actually, to the things that we are doing. We need to to do some things, to add some structures and procedures to help us really live out the gospel in the city of Baltimore. And it was really no different for this first century church. And this was one of the very first practical issues that they had to deal with. One of the very first issues that they actually had to apply structure to. It's interesting to note that that the first issues that they had had to deal with were not theological ones where they had to establish some study commission to figure out what we really believe about this. The first issue they really dealt with, the first issue that they applied structure to was a social issue. It was the issue of caring for people in great need, people who were vulnerable. You see, the tendency also, though, is to misunderstand this passage. It's to misunderstand the passage and think that there's some sort of tiered structure to church leadership now in this first century church. There's the pastors, the ones that their job is to preach on Sunday morning and to pray and to do the really spiritual aspects of the ministry. And then there are these seven men who have to get their hands dirty and actually serve in the church. That's not really what was going on here. What was actually going on here is the leadership felt that they just simply had to apply some sort of structure in order to help them to do the thing that they felt to be most important. Many churches have the office of deacon, and these are, these are roles in a fancy role in, in a church that, that says they are to be the chief servants that exist in a church. And they get the, uh, they get the concept of this position from this very passage in Acts chapter 6. But no way does it mean that deacons in our church today and these ancient servants back in this day were the only ones in the church that were supposed to serve. Nor does it say that pastoral work is in some ways better than social work. What it does say is that all God's people are called to serve. From the pastor to the occasional attender, everyone is called to serve because it is part of the fabric of what it means to follow Jesus. But there's something else that's subtly going on here that's easy to miss. And what it reminds us is that God is using these first century believers despite some very glaring blind spots in their lives. 
You know, one of the misconceptions we have about these first century believers is that everything was perfect. That their church community was wonderful and there was no bad things going on or kind of no kind of sinful things that were beginning to creep in. But there is a bigger issue that is going on in this passage that will eventually come to life later on in the book of Acts. Because what you begin to see in this passage is that this church is beginning to divide. It's beginning to divide between two different types of Jews. There were the Hebraic Jews, those that lived in Jerusalem for their entire lives. And there were the Hellenistic Jews, those that had moved away and would return back. The Hellenistic Jews were different culturally. They spoke in the Greek language. They had elements of Greek culture, things of of foreign lands. And the Hebraic Jews didn't like them. They felt themselves to be the true Jews, the ones that have stayed most faithful to their Jewish heritage. And it's interesting to note that the only widows that were being neglected in the midst of the church were the, the widows of the Hellenistic Jews. There was definitely a, a racial issue or a, a, at best a class issue that was starting to emerge in this church. And what Luke is doing is he is foreshadowing a bigger issue of racism and classism that he will deal with later on in the book. But what it does remind us is that this first century church was not perfect. They, were ha- they had flaws. They had blind spots. They had things about them that they weren't really seeing about themselves that God would eventually deal with at some point. But what's comforting to know is that despite all that, God was still using them to do great things. If you're here at City Church and you think that this is the perfect church, then you are sorely mistaken. It's an imperfect church because it is led by an imperfect pastor and it is full of imperfect people. But isn't it good news to know that despite our imperfection, God chooses to do great things, not just in our church, but also in our lives as well. God is using this church despite their imperfection because his grace is doing something powerful. But the biggest issue that I think Luke wants us to see out of this passage is this idea of service. He wants us to see that living out the gospel means giving ourselves away for the sake of others and that this may be the very core nature or the core evidence of what faith in Jesus looks like. Giving ourselves away in service to others and the most vulnerable that are in our path. One person uh, said, about, said this about Jesus. He said about Jesus that his path was particularly downwardly mobile. And I often wondered, that was an interesting thing to say, that Jesus' path was, was downwardly mobile. What they meant by that is that we often live in an upwardly mobile society, right? If you live in the professional world, we are often consumed with trying to better ourselves professionally or climb the professional ladder and uh, become better respected or, or more respectful in whatever profession we have. And in some ways, there's really nothing wrong with that, though the temptation for, for uh, greed and the lust for power is a very real temptation. We live in a part of the city where people have more degrees than I can count. 
where they have uh, more job prospects than we can even ma- imagine. So we live in a culture that that's, that's naturally tends towards upward mobility. But what the path of Jesus is, is the path of Jesus is a downwardly mobile path. Because the scriptures tell us that Jesus set aside all the glories of heaven to become a baby. To become a baby that was born in scandal and poverty. And during his ministry, you don't necessarily see him uh, rubbing shoulders with the cultural elite or trying to climb the social ladder. Instead, you see him surrounding himself with those who are considered the outcasts of society. He intentionally sought out the weak and the vulnerable. He intentionally sought out the oppressed. And finally, he offered himself up, naked and weak himself, at the cross. We serve a God who himself became poor and vulnerable. Second Corinthians says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. What it says to us is that we serve a God who intentionally became poor so that you and I could become rich spiritually. A famous writer, Jonathan Edwards, said this. He said, Christ loved and pitied us when we were poor and he laid out himself to help and even did shed his own blood for us without grudging. He did not think much to deny himself and to be at great cost for, bi- for vile wretches in order to make us rich and to clothe us with kingly robes when we were naked and to feast us at his own table with dainties infinitely costly when we were starving, to advance us from the dunghill and set us amongst princes and make us to inherit the throne of his glory and so to give us the enjoyment of the greatest wealth and plenty to all eternity. You see, Jesus' work of redemption was not accomplished through climbing the social or political ladder. It came through his becoming the vulnerable one on our behalf. It came through him meeting with the poor and oppressed, and it came through him purchasing redemption for them and for us. And what Luke wants us to see is that if we are going to follow him, then we are to walk the same path. It is a path in which we give ourselves up for others. You know, we can think of lots of excuses why we ought not to serve. The excuses of we don't have the time to do it or we don't have the the financial means to do it or we don't really like people at all. We can say it's really the government's job to serve other people. That's why welfare and government programs are around. We can think that uh, they're in their needful state because of laziness or for something that they've done to bring it upon themselves. But at the end of the day, none of those excuses really stand up to the Scriptures. Because the Scriptures tell us why we serve. They tell us we serve because He first served us. Aren't you glad that when it came to you and your spiritual brokenness, Jesus didn't use all those excuses? Aren't you glad that Jesus found the time to work redemption into your life? That he found the time to meet you in your spiritual poverty and oppression? 
that he didn't find the cost of his life too great to withhold it in order to redeem you. So just as Jesus met the materially needy when he was here on this earth, he meets us in our place of spiritual neediness and pours in our hearts and lives the riches of heaven. And the more we reflect on that, the more we reflect on what the gospel really tells us, the more it will naturally flow out of our lives in terms of giving ourselves away for others, and especially the poor and the needy and the vulnerable. Mark ten forty five says, For even the Son of Man came not to serve, but to not not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. See, we live in a culture that tends to be somewhat self-obsessed. Edwards also said that man is naturally governed only by the principle of self-love. So we tend to always look out for ourselves. We tend to love ourselves more than anything else. And we don't think that we need one another. We like to pride ourselves on our independence. But the truth is we really do desperately need one another. We desperately need to have other people in our lives meeting us in our place of need because we never know when we will be that person who is in need. You see, we serve because we desperately need one another. The first century believers knew that the gospel translated into serving one another. They instinctively knew that this gospel meant loving one another in deep ways. And they considered each and every person in their midst with dignity as if they were part of their very own family. They knew that because they knew that we need each other. And it is no different today. It's what the gospel looked like to them. And it's what it looks like to us as well. But the last thing the scriptures teach us about this thing called service is that it teaches us that when we serve one another, when we serve the poor and the vulnerable in our midst, we are actually serving God. There's a really powerful illustration that Jesus uses in Matthew chapter 25. And at the end of the illustration, he says this. He says, truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, You did it to me. And as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to them. What Jesus is saying is, is if you want to live this walk of faith, if you want to serve me with your life, then you will naturally serve others. And what he's also saying is that if you want to find me, if you want to know where I reside, if you wanted to discover me, then you will discover me amongst the poor and the vulnerable because what you do for them, you do for me. Uh, If you know me at all, you know that um, I've had the privilege over the past, gosh, 10 years of being a participant on several kind of mission trips similar to what Justin and Natalie mentioned before and also to be a leader uh, on several of these kind of mission trips and I've led trips uh, really all over the world, uh, many to third world countries, but I've also led trips to third world conditions here uh, in Baltimore City. And often I would lead young people in the process as well. And what inevitably happened every time we had one of these trips is a student would come to me and they would say, I, 
I don't know if I should really go on this trip. And I said, well, let's talk about it. What do you mean by that? And they said, well, I'm not really feeling it in my heart or I'm not feeling uh, that I've got kind of all my spiritual ducks in a row before I can do something like this trip. And I feel like I need to, to be more in touch with God in order to go on this trip. And what I would often encourage them is I would say, you may not feel God going into this trip, but I can almost guarantee you that when you look in the eyes of the poor and the vulnerable, you will find Jesus. You know how I know to say that? I know to say that because the very same thing happened to me. In, uh, I think it was 1996, which was almost 20 years ago, which is very scary, uh, I had the opportunity to go uh, on, a, on a, one of these mission trips to Russia. And uh, I was um, 17, 18 at the, at, at the time, and it was the first mission trip that I'd ever been on. So it was towards the back end of, of my uh, high school career. And we'd done all the preparation to go on this trip. Uh, but for whatever reason, at the very end, I started to not feel like I wanted to go on this trip. In reality, looking back, it was probably one of those times in my life where I really felt like I wasn't connecting with God spiritually. I was kind of an adolescent, so I was emotional and all the things that go on with adolescence and all that sort of stuff. But for whatever reason, I tried to get out of this trip because I just didn't feel like that I had any ground to go before God and serve other people. So I called the team leader and said, hey, I don't want to go on this trip anymore, but he talked me into it. So I made the long travel, went to Russia, and immediately experienced some of the sad things about Russian culture in the late 90s, and, and really the, the post-war uh, Russian culture in which uh, the mafia, once communism left, the mafia came in and really took everything over, and it led to incredible, incredible instances of poverty that were all around us. I can remember walking the streets. It was in January, so it was bitter cold, and, and seeing people beg all over the streets. I remember seeing missionaries who knew that they could very easily be arrested for doing the thing that they did. And I can remember playing with little children who didn't know where their next meal was going to come from. And in the process, I saw Jesus in their eyes. And it changed me like nothing else in my life. Because what it reminded me was the very same thing that the gospel writers remind us in Matthew. That if you want to find Jesus, that you will find him when you give yourselves away for the poor and the vulnerable and the oppressed that, in your, that are in your midst. Because that is where God dwells. Jesus says in Matthew 29, if you want to find me, then you will find me when you give yourself away in service for other people. Maybe you're sitting here and you don't, you've, you've, you've walked down this faith road for a long time, but for whatever reason you've gotten to a place where, where your faith feels cold or where it feels dry. You've tried to kind of pull yourselves up by your bootstraps and tried to muscle through the faith a little bit, wondering when uh, those feelings will return. Well, the message that the Gospels tell us, the message that Acts tells us, is that if you want to find God, then you find Him amongst the needy. You find Him when you serve. Make no mistake that the path of faith is a path that gives itself away for others. 
The most important question we have to ask ourselves is, does the faith of our words match up with the faith of our actions? Know that in the gospel, God pours his love into your life, but not just for you. He wants you to be a vehicle of that love to those that he places on your path, especially those that he calls you to serve.